This morning, we're going to be talking about the most popular verse in the entire Bible in the 21st century America. The most popular verse, the most well-known verse, the most oft-quoted verse in the whole Bible in the day in which we live. It used to be John 3.16. It isn't anymore. Americans used to all know John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, His unique Son, so that all who believe in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. America's verse now is not John 3.16. It is what? Well, we don't know where it is, but what does it say? Two words. Judge not. Judge not. That's the verse we love. It's the verse in, in great vogue. It's the one that we recite again and again and again, whether we're Christians or non-Christians. We love to say, judge not lest you be judged. I could say that in front of a Christian audience. I could say it in front of a non-Christian audience in a church context, in a non-church context. Everyone would know. Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. It's in, excuse me, it's in Luke chapter 6, so if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and find Luke 6. It's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be talking about that command, judge not. One person labeled it as the great American open-mindedness mantra. Someone who wasn't very happy with that command. But the reality is, Jesus does say it. And it is a command by Jesus immediate context, he's talking to his disciples before he sends them out to preach the gospel. He does, in fact, say to them, judge not lest you be judged. Here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at two dangers associated with that verse. We're going to look at it from this angle. We're going to look at it from this angle. Both are, are dangerous kinds of angles in hopes that we, we are faithful to Jesus, in hopes that we can act truly Christian and by looking at these two dangers and avoiding the two dangers, danger number one will be isolating that verse. The danger of isolation. Danger number two will be ignoring that verse. The danger of ignoring. Okay, that's going to be the format for this morning. Really, the first one is not going to be in Luke 6, although we'll be uh, in it a little bit. The danger we face of, in our culture, isolating that verse pretending like it's the only verse, pretending like it's, it's the ultimate verse by which everything else should be read and interpreted, the danger of isolation. Then we'll look at the danger of ignoring it. Now, I don't know everyone in this room. I know lots of you. Um, this doesn't apply if we've never spoken or if you've never been here before because I, I don't know enough about you to know if you'll come back next week or not. Um, but by and large, most of us here today who are at all like-minded, serious-minded Christians, find the isolation of this verse to be enough to drive us batty. It drives us batty because people act as if this is the only thing Jesus ever said. It drives us nuts when we hear people reference this verse and we think, oh no, and people are like, judge not lest you be judged. And you say something that's true about Jesus that Jesus said, and judge not lest you be judged. And you're like, all right already. Stop with the headwagging, judge not lest you be judged. And it, and it really irritates us. And so we're going to get all fired up in the first part of the sermon because I'm just going to throw fuel on your fire and you're going to get more upset with the abuse of judge not lest you be judged, the abuse of isolating the verse. And then I'm going to have you right where I want you. Because then I am going to need to hopefully graciously reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. Because then we're going to talk about the danger of ignoring the verse. Most of us here today would prefer to be upset about isolating the verse, but we would also like to ignore the verse. Because it really does mean something, and it really is applicable to us. And that'll be the part that kind of stings for us. Because we really do need to take those words seriously that come from Jesus. Make sense? Hope so. I'm not going to say it a different way. Um, we're going to try to have a biblical balance, I guess, is where we're trying to, trying to go with, with all of this. Luke 6, 37 is where the verse is. But we're going to talk about the danger of isolating first. Think with me, if you would, about how 
silly it is, how meaningless it is if we absolutize the verse. That is to say, we make it like the only verse. Think how silly it is even from a logical perspective because Jesus says in command mode, judge not or you'll be judged. Even, even him saying that is a statement of judgment. He's telling people what to do. So if there's no place for judging at all, based upon this verse, then the verse doesn't even make sense because Jesus is telling you to do something and not do something else. So even from a purely logical perspective, if we isolate the verse, the verse doesn't even make sense because he says to do something. Oh, that narrow-minded Jesus. Somebody should, if it's the only verse, somebody should say, Jesus, judge not lest you be judged. Well, I just said judge not lest you be judged. But Jesus, that's judgmental. It doesn't even make sense the way we're used to thinking of it as kind of the American mantra of postmodern milieu, whatever you want to believe, it's all true and all right, even if it's mutually exclusive. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. So if we isolate it, it's going to be problematic. Jesus said things that are judging quite frequently. How about in Matthew chapter 10? You don't need to turn there, but in Matthew chapter 10, uh, another place where he tells his disciples to go out, so it's similar to this one. He's sending them out into different communities, preaching the good news, and if people reject them, they're to clean off their feet. Symbolic of judgment, like we might say, wash our hands of them. And then Jesus says, on the day of judgment, it will be worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus judges. He talks a lot about judgment. We wouldn't know it because we just have one verse that we know that we isolate. But it's ridiculous. It it, it doesn't make sense to isolate it from all other verses because the Bible has plenty to say about judgment. Why why don't you, just to get a flavor for this, turn with me to John. I know I told you to turn to Luke, but if you just go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. John chapter 3, John chapter 5, John chapter 8. Just trying to get you a, a, a feel for and equip you with understanding the danger in isolating that verse. The Bible says lots about judgment, not just judge not lest you be judged. So we've got to have it work, and it means something. We're going to get to that. But it probably doesn't mean what a lot of your friends think it means. And a lot of people you talk to think it means. And talking heads on TV think it means. Just this past week, I was listening to talk radio, and I wasn't even listening for a long time. It just happened to be on, and they're talking about um, morality issues and all the debate that's gone on this week, and, and they're just going at each other, and somebody, sure enough, it was like on cue, sermon illustration, judge not, lest you be judged. That's what Jesus says. And, <laughs> and you know, you're like, oh, man. And thankfully, whoever was on the other side of the microphone, Christian or not a Christian, had enough common sense to have read the, at least part of the Bible before and say, well, actually, I think Jesus said a lot about judgment, and that's not all he said. I was like, praise the Lord for talk radio guys, even if they're not Christians. Well, we're just getting a sample of that here today so that we can try to have a more biblical perspective on things, a bigger perspective, um, a Christ-honoring perspective. And then we'll talk about what he actually means by judge not, lest he be judged. John chapter 3, he says, right after 316, uh, 3.18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's, that's a judgment term. That's about, condemnation is about judgment. But whoever does not believe is condemned, is judged and found guilty is the idea already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's just a little sampling of, of, of things that are going to help us think rightly about the bigger issue. Yeah, Jesus talks about judgment, all right. And guess what? Ultimately, it centers on him. And he was going to have no part in affirming people saying to him in light of that, judge not lest you be judged. He's the only son of God. And, and therefore, he has every right to say this because he's the unique son through which we can have reconciliation. So it makes sense. So let's remember who Jesus is, and let's remember that he didn't just say one thing. How about John chapter 5? Something similar. In John chapter 5, just a couple chapters over, he says, in verse 22 of John 5, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. How about that? 
So much for God used to be the judge and now it's Jesus and now everything's fine and everything's wonderful because you know what Jesus lived by, the ultimate principle, the ultimate everything, judge not lest you be judged. All, he says, all judgment's been given to me. It's all been given to me. So we've got to think rightly about who Jesus is so that we can think Christ honoringly and think in a way that would please him. How about John chapter 8? In John chapter 8, just another sample passage. Isn't it interesting we tell unbelievers to read John? Um, yeah, it'll help them to at least sort out the fact that Jesus didn't say just only judge not lest you be judged. And he, he meant something other than we commonly think he meant. He talks a lot about judgment in John. And it's a letter written so that unbelievers can believe the truth about Jesus. John chapter 8 verse 24 says, I told you that you would die in your sins. That sounds pretty judgmental. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. That's logical if he's the only son of God through which we can find reconciliation, atonement, redemption. It's right. But you could say, Jesus, you sure seem to be close-minded. By the way, he was the most closed-minded man who ever walked the earth. Everything he said was right. <laughs> he didn't have to be open-minded. Because he, 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 he was right about everything. And my friends, Christians, you, you need to know that. Now, we're going to get to our demeanor and how we should handle that truth. Not like a club to beat people over the head with. We're going to get to that part. But we've got to remember. You, know, you, you, you can't buy into the lie that Jesus isn't the ultimate, that Jesus isn't the truth, because that would be judgmental. All over the place, he's, he's claiming to be the guy, the one, the true Son of God. Christianity stands or falls based upon that. There is no Christianity apart from that. Like the guy was suggesting on talk radio. How about John 8.44? John 8.44 is, is quite a doozy when it comes to Jesus speaking judgmentally. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Wow. You're of your father, the devil, and, you, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. It's pretty black and white because there is no truth in him. Pretty black and white, very critical, very judgmental. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he was a liar. He is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Bam! And Jesus didn't always speak that pointedly, but he certainly speaks that pointedly, always truthfully, but that aggressively with these religious leaders and false teachers and liars. Let's make sure we, we are in the Word enough and, and we're acting like Christians and we're thinking like Christians. And, and even though we're trying to be sensitive and we're trying to fit in culturally and we're trying to, to not be overly abrasive and those kinds of things, we've, we've got to think clearly about who Jesus is. We have to think clearly about who Jesus is. Lest we deny Him. To isolate that statement, judge not lest you be judged and make it our mantra and to make it our creed doesn't fit with the rest of the things Jesus said as we typically use it. In Luke chapter 6, he'll go on to say in our context, you can know a good tree and a bad tree by that tree's what? By its fruit. Judge not lest you be judged. Obviously, when Jesus says, you know them by their fruits, he's expecting you to be able to say, that's bad fruit, bad tree, conclusion. So whatever he means by that, and we know what he means, and we'll get to it in the weeks ahead, we know what he means. He's not contradicting himself when he said, judge not lest you be judged. So what's he getting at? We're going to get to that later. 
But just know that he calls for critical analysis. He calls for evaluation. He calls to look at something from from a truth perspective in light of what God has said in his word and for you and for me to say that's right or that's wrong. Begs the question, then what did he mean by judge not lest you be judged? We're going to get to that, but I want to keep throwing more fuel on the fire and getting us to think clearly about this matter of Jesus and who he is and what he claimed and what the implications for that would be. In Matthew 7, same sermon, but not in our Luke account, he says, don't cast your pearls, your valuable jewels. And he's talking about the truth message, the gospel message. Don't cast your pearls before what? Before swine, before pigs. That's pretty judgmental. I mean, so eventually you've got to get to the point where you, you stop giving them the, the valuable jewel of the gospel because you've drawn the conclusion that spiritually they're pigs. Judge not, lest you be judged. As D.A. Carson likes to say, somebody has to figure out who the pigs are. And he's expecting you to be able to figure out who the pigs are. Wow. That's being judgmental. It's so, it absolutely is being judgmental. There's a Christian way to be judgmental. There's a Christian mandate to be judgmental, right? How about in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus says, the road is narrow that leads to life, broad that leads to destruction. Few are on the narrow road. Many are on the broad road. Super judging. Super judging. Say, why are we going through all this exercise? Because you are being assaulted and bombarded bombastically all over the place from every front, even from Christian front sometimes, about being open-minded and being neutral on everything. Judge not lest you be judged. And I'm here as a pastor saying, let me help you. Let me equip you. Let's think about this the right way. How about discernment? How can you be discerning unless you're being judging? In fact, judgment means discernment i mean they're the same they feed off of each other paul says in first thessalonians chapter 5 verses 20 and 21 examine everything carefully hold fast to that which is good abstain from that which is evil you gotta judge when the bereans were listening to paul preach they had to judge They were listening to him preach with their Bibles open, their Old Testament scriptures, examining the scriptures to see if these things were so. And Paul didn't say, judge not lest you be judged. He was an apostle and they were still called to critically evaluate and they were affirmed for doing it. Think about that. The truth is with morality as well. You've got to be able to say, that's right. That's wrong. Period. You have to. Or you're, you're saying God isn't clear, God is a liar. You, you have to be able to do that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, for example, drunkards will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a judgment. It's a judgment. He says that fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a judgment. He says that homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's a judgment. How does he know this? Because this is what God tells him, and so he echoes what God says. So I have to do the same. I'm glad for those things. I'm glad for those things, because in the same passage, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and following, he says to a church like this, and such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were cleansed, you were sanctified. I'm so glad somebody showed me that Bible verse. That series of verses. I'm so glad that as a college student, I had to look up those verses and come to the conclusion I wasn't a Christian. My response, by the grace of God, was not, who are you to judge? I was judged all right. God says people who acted the way I was acting show themselves to not be Christians. But I'm also glad there was hope involved that if I'm united to Christ by faith in His finished work, that I'm no longer like that. Doesn't mean I don't have struggles with sin, but I am no longer defined by those sinful actions. But it's a judgment. You need some judgment or you don't even realize what's right or what's wrong. One other passage about this, and that's 1 Corinthians 5, okay? I realize what's happening to a degree, and maybe some of you are getting fired up. 
That's our tendency right now, okay? Um, your, your tendency and my tendency, not true of everybody here probably, but our tendency is like, yeah, pastor, so let's go get them. You know, I'm so, I've added up to here with this postmodern, you know, deconstructionistic, oh, I'm just so, I'm so had it with it. I know what's right and I know what's wrong and Jesus is right and everybody else is wrong and <sighs> go get them. That's what, that, that's how we get. And we look like fighting fundamentalists. That's why it's going to be important that we move on in just a little while, talk about the danger of ignoring Judge not, lest you be judged. But before we get there, I want to get you fired up. Because <laughs> I do want you thinking about these matters. I want you thinking Christianly and commonsensically, if that is the right way to say it. How about 1 Corinthians chapter 5? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we could look at the whole chapter. For the sake of time, we won't. But I at least want you to see this, this scolding of a Christian church. Okay, they're feeling the pressure to be PC, like we feel the pressure. Uh, they're feeling the pressure to, to be uh, culturally sensitive, culturally relevant. Um, this is postmodernism before Foucault and before all the great French philosophers that maybe aren't so great. And I mean, they're, they're having everybody fit in. And, and they think it's a badge of honor. Look what it says in... Verse 9. Sorry, we're skipping the part before that. But verse 9 says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world. Or the greedy or, or, and swindlers or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. You, you would have to leave the planet. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or, or an idolater or reviler or drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? The implied answer, I have nothing to do with judging outsiders, trying to get non-Christians to act like Christians. That doesn't make sense. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Implied answer is yes. God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is a critical one for us to, to grasp in general. It's critical that we grasp something of this reality, especially dealing with the culture we live in. The church is mandated to judge itself. It's mandated. He says right there, you judge me, I judge you. Now, there's got to be a place for judge not lest you be judged. We're going to get to that. But before we do, here's, a, here's an imperative. We do judge those inside the church professing Christians. We hold each other accountable. We have to say, Pat, that's wrong. You can't do that. Pat, that's right. You need to do that. It's a one another kind of function. It's not, hey, you know what? Everybody's welcome here no matter what they do. You can't do that with 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But he's also saying, your job is to not discipline non-Christians. <laughs> you can tell them what God's law says, and you can tell them that they're sinners, absolutely, like 1 Corinthians 6 does. People who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'll preach that all day long because I'm so glad somebody preached it to me because it led to me becoming a Christian. But we're not trying to get people who are not Christians to act like Christians. And so we get people who say they're Christians. We confront and we admonish and exhort and we judge because we say we're Christians. You need to act like a Christian. But we don't take the same message to a different people group and say, you need to act like a Christian. Because, hello, newsflash, they're not. They don't have the Spirit of God in them, which comes as a result of being united to Christ. Therefore, they don't and cannot manifest the fruit of the Spirit, of which is, among many, self-control. And here's an example of a church that's got it upside down. I would suggest to you that many times the church... And Christians who make up the church get it upside down. Let's let anything go 
in the church. And let's just go outside and try to get non-Christians to act like Christians. The gospel of morality, which is no gospel. This is so important that we grapple with this issue, especially the way we're, we're wanting to, we're getting provoked to fight. Think about it. We're confused about this one sometimes. Don't misunderstand. Everyone's under the law of God. And everyone is a lawbreaker. We break it in different, various and sundry ways, to use old English. <laughs> and we want to re- point that out to people so that they can see their need for a Savior. But we have to understand that we're not trying to get un- non-Christians, un-Christians, we can say that too, <laughs> to act like Christians and holding them to a Christian standard. Because we're not. Isn't it kind of interesting? If we had a sign by the street out there, we don't. Um, someday we'll be a rich church and we'll have all kinds of stuff like that. But um, I was just at a church that had escalators. Man, I was at another church that had a cl- two climbing walls. It was so cool. Anyway, um, our sign out there, um, as far as I would have any input, and my input is not the only input, but I, I wouldn't want it to say, everyone welcome. Because it's not true. It's not true. We want to be a welcoming church. We want to be friendly. We want to be nice. We want to have food to eat in the morning. We want to have greeters, ushers, otherwise known as grushers. Um, I mean, we, we want to do all things that we can to be kind and warm and gentle. But everyone's not welcome. Unbelievers are welcome. Believers who aren't living in unconfessed sin are welcome. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that kind of a a paradigm shocker for some? So you could have people come here who don't profess to be Christians who are living in, in the kind of sin that really turns you off. And they would be welcome. But when you profess to be a Christian, you're supposed to live differently and you must live differently. And if you don't live differently, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you're not even to eat with that person. No Christian fellowship. Let's be careful on this one. Let's be careful and realize we are to judge. He says to judge the body and to judge it rightly. Our message to the people outside of the body is be reconciled to God through Christ. We preach the gospel. That's what we do. Let's not be confused on this one. Let's not be confused at all. Maybe one more source of confusion uh, on this. It's somewhat related. Just because I know you guys aren't fired up yet enough. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm just so... I'm, I'm, I'll, let me just be blunt and crass. I am sick and tired of people talking about judge not lest you be judged. In the name of anything goes. And as soon as you say something's true and you have to believe in Jesus, I'm written off as some kind of uber-duber right-wing fundamentalist uh, who's intolerant. Are you sick and tired of it? I'm totally sick and tired of it. And if you've come to this church more than like three times, we're probably a lot alike. <laughs> okay? I mean, if you come to Omaha Bible Church, you, you, you're prone toward thinking in black and white terms. Um, you're prone toward saying, you know what? Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by Him because that's what John 14 says. Um, so we're, we're probably um, birds of a feather to one degree or another. And then the tolerance thing comes. You know, it used to be tolerance is where people disagreed with each other, but that they would put up with each other in a civil way. Now, tolerance is you can't disagree with anyone or you're intolerant, which is nonsensical because... Tolerance is based upon non-agreeing. Here's a great quotation from D.A. Carson um, on this. I think he wrote a book on it since then, but when he was here in 2008, um, somebody transcribed what he wrote about it, and I thought it was helpful, and it's going to get you even more upset. 25 years ago, tolerance was understood to be a virtue that operated something like this. If I hold strong views on a particular subject, I'm nevertheless judged to be tolerant if I think that your views are bad, immoral, improper, even disgusting, wicked, or stupid, 
but still insist you have the right to defend them. In other words, a tolerant person puts up with somebody else's views and insists that they have the right to hold them even while in the vigorous arena of debate we might disagree fundamentally on who is right or who is wrong. Such a person is a tolerant person. But nowadays, that is not what tolerance means. Now tolerance means that you don't hold that anybody is right or wrong. Everybody is equally right or wrong. Nobody is more right than another person. If you don't hold that, then you are intolerant. Now, that is a huge shift, Carson says. Under this new definition of tolerance, I don't even know what tolerance means. Because in the old view of tolerance, you had to disagree with someone before you could actually tolerate them. How do you say, oh, yes, you were entirely right. I tolerate you. See, if you didn't catch it till then, you should be able to catch it then. I'll repeat it. Oh, yes, you're entirely right. I tolerate you. This new tolerance actually becomes extremely intolerant of anybody who does not buy into this view's tolerance. Because if you actually come right out and say that some view is wrong or silly or foolish or indefensible or even questionable, then you are judged to be intolerant. Thus, in the name of this new fangled tolerance, it turns out at profoundly deep levels to be the most intolerant thing of all. Posted it on Twitter yesterday if you want to find the actual quotation. He's on to something. And you know what? That just makes me madder. Because I can't say there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. I can't say it. I can't quote the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts, chapter 4. You can't either without being labeled intolerant. And now all of a sudden, your intolerance is a short breath away from a hate crime. Historically, Tolerance is where I say Jesus is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by Him. And you say, I disagree with you. But we don't need to kill each other over it. We're going to tolerate each other. We're going to act civilly toward each other. I'm fired up about it. I want to say, if I hear one more person say, Judge, not lest you be judged, I'm going to scream. Don't do it. (laughs) But here's the danger. If that's one danger, the danger over here is we ignore the verse. We ignore the command. The command that really means something. The command that's meant to be taken to heart. So if you've checked out, closed your Bible, didn't think I was going there, you can go back to Luke chapter 6. Now we're going to get into what it actually says and what it means by what it says. Put yourself... In the shoes of the disciples, they're ready to be sent out. Jesus is equipping them. Sermon on the Mount. There are other people hearing. There's, there's a broader audience, but he's talking to the, to the disciples. Uh, and, and he's talking to the, to these Christians, these believers who are ready to be sent out. What are they going to be sent out with? They're going to be sent out with the, with the gospel message. Who they've been hanging out with? Jesus, who is the way, the truth, the life. He's always right about everything. He's the Messiah. He's, he's, the, he's the one, the, ho- the Holy One of God. And now you're going to go out and you're going to tell everyone, starting with the Jews, about Jesus and how you need to trust in Him and Him alone. He's the unique Son of God. You need to repent of your sins. You need to be reconciled to God. And you know full well if your name is Jesus, like nobody would know, that not everybody's going to go, Oh, wonderful. Where do I sign up? And what's going to happen if you're one of those disciples? Your proneness is to blast people. Just like your proneness and my proneness is to blast people. We might be telling the truth, but we might be telling the truth in a way that is entirely unfitting with what it means to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's what he's getting at. So he says, verse 37, Judge not, and you will not be judged. 
And then he's going to give three more commands that all support this main command. But that main command is the big one. Judge not and you will not be judged. I think the latter part of that is used in a, in a Proverbs kind of way, a proverbial kind of thing. Um, it's a general truism. There are going to t- come times when they are judged, actually. <laughs> like the Apostle Paul. General truism, I think, is what he's getting at. Here's how I want you to act. I want you to act Christianly in your demeanor. And it will lead to a, generally speaking, fitting response like Proverbs would talk about. I don't think he's talking about if you don't judge other people, then God won't judge you. I don't think that's the idea because he's going to go on to say, if you don't condemn, then God won't condemn you. So now salvation is based upon you doing the right thing. I don't think he's talking about this relationship. I think he's talking about this relationship. But do take these words seriously where he says, judge not and you will not be judged. What's a judge do? A judge evaluates. A judge draws conclusions based upon standards, based upon laws. Well, if we just say this is an absolute and we absolutize this and we say, well, okay, so we're going to go out and we're going to tell people about the gospel, but we can't say anything about judgment. It doesn't even make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all because we don't need Jesus as a savior if there's no such thing as judgment. He can't be getting at that. I don't think, I don't know of anyone who thinks he's getting at that. I'll side with everybody I read. The common view, the Christian view is he's talking about demeanor. He's talking about attitude. He's talking about your disposition. You've got to talk about judgment. You've got to talk about God's judgment. You've got to talk about God's judgment on the Son or you can't talk about the gospel. The pouring out of the wrath of the Father upon the Son, the wrath that we deserve. I mean, you, you can't avoid that, but what you can avoid is being Mr. or Mrs. mean-spirited, condemning, pharisaic kind of person. Here, here's the best, the best summary I could find on this uh, was this. What is commanded is an attitude that is hesitant to condemn and quick to forgive. Speaking about all the verses. What is prohibited is an arrogance that rejects with hostility to the worldly and morally lax, viewing such people as beyond God's reach. I really like this part. What is censured by Jesus is an attitude like that of the Pharisee in Luke 18. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people who are sinners. It's an attitude of condemnation. It's an attitude of superiority. It's an attitude of, oh, you people are all bad, so you need Jesus. Judge not. Don't have that demeanor. Instead, our demeanor should be remembering who we are. Remember these disciples and remember how easy it is to forget who you are. Jesus picked us. I'm chosen. I'm one of the twelve. I'm a disciple, not just a disciple, an apostle. I speak with his authority. And I'm one with Jesus. And so, and he's right about everything. You bad sinners. You're so bad. Deserving judgment and condemnation. Let me tell you the good news. You know? Instead, I like the analogy. I'll steal it from someone else. We're like beggars. Telling other beggars where to find food. We're sinners. You've got to remember what the gospel is to begin with. Matthew would have understood this like few of the other ones. So what does Matthew's approach need to be? He's gotten really used to being on Jesus' team. And they're right about everything. But he's approaching fellow sinners. And he needs to do so in a demeanor, in a way, in a tone that is not condemnatory that is not judgmental. And I think that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, judge not lest you be judged. Let me put it in practical terms. How do people hear you when you tell them the gospel? When you're being disciple-like. We're ambassadors, all of us. We're called ambassadors. Great Commission is alive and well. When you talk to people about Jesus, unbelievers about Jesus, how do they hear you? 
self-righteous, arrived, you know all the answers. That's how we don't want them to hear you. Let's apply it a different way. How do you think of yourself right now? How do you think of yourself as you sit? Or I'll think of myself as I stand here. Worthy of God's love. I'm right because I know the truth. I know the answers. And I know where all of these crazy liberals are wrong. Man, if that's my demeanor, you know how I'm going to sound? Condemning, judging, holier than thou, we would say a long time ago. Self-righteous, pharisaical. The Apostle Paul's been a Christian for a long time when he still says, I'm the chief of sinners. If you sit here right now and you think, I'm not worthy of God's great grace, but he's given it to me anyway. He gave me what I didn't deserve. I so deserve the condemnation of God, but he's shown me mercy instead. I can almost promise you that the way you talk to other people is going to be much more prone to being this kind of talk. My great prayer would be is that we would talk in a way that would honor Jesus. You have to judge. You have to evaluate. You can't be discerning. You can't be a Christian faithful in your Christian living apart from judging. These guys are getting sent out to talk to unbelievers at this phase in the ball game. And he says, judge not. It's probably judgmentalism, pharisaical kind of demeanor. Wouldn't it be great if we talk to people and when we talk to people about Christ, we're remembering our own salvation? We're dead in trespasses and sins. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that everything Christians have received, I think it's in chapter 4 off the top of my head, three or four. Everything we've received has been, anybody know? It's been given to us. I've got the right answers. You do. If you have a Bible on your lap, you have the right answers. But don't use it like a club. (laughs) A self-righteous, holier-than-thou club. Don't do that. And I think then we're going to be honoring Jesus. He says the same kinds of things as he moves on. And let's go ahead and wrap it up by moving on. He says, condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Once again, um, on the surface of it, in a certain way, we actually, if we're going to preach the gospel, we are condemning. Right? That's why I think he's getting to demeanor and attitude. But most certainly, when you tell someone the gospel, in a sense, you're condemning them. And you can say, well, I'm not, God is. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But what, what do you have to do? He's using a word that's related to righteousness, which is related to law, which is related to standard. And we have to tell people, everyone is a lawbreaker. You are a lawbreaker. You are a sinner. You're not righteous. There's not a single righteous person. So that's not it. Because we have to go down there. We, we have to say, you know what? Here's God's standard. Here's what it is. Here's what he says about you. You don't meet God's standard. Christ came, met the standard perfectly on our behalf, in our place. He bore the wrath of God and absorbed all of that judgment that comes to lawbreakers, to the unrighteous, the just for the unjust, all this to bring us to God. You, you, you're totally talking about condemnation and how, how to not be condemned. which supports the perspective that would say, he's talking about your demeanor. He's saying, don't you do this. You're guilty too. Talk to people who are guilty like a fellow person who's guilty. You're going to point to Christ then as good news. Later in this passage, we won't get to it today, he's going to talk about the ugliness of hypocrisy, which is going to be such a good and fitting follow-up. We're busy telling people what bad sinners they are. And then they see us when nobody's watching, and they see we're bad sinners too. 
That's why we don't preach ourselves. We preach Christ. But see, what happens is we're in the inner circle with Jesus and it doesn't take very long to forget the gospel. Like these 12 would have been in the inner circle with Jesus. Maybe we're not in the inner circle the same way the way they are, but you're learning, you're growing, you're fellowshipping, you're sorting things out, you're becoming more and more discerning, and your bat potentially is getting really, really big. And Jesus says, put the bat away. <laughs> then let's move on where he says, forgive in verse 37 and you will be forgiven. Once again, that's got to be talking on a, a human relational level, uh, less salvation and forgiveness be based upon works, which is clearly not the case. Um, generally speaking, you forgive, you pardon people, and that's going to be a demeanor that you're going to be met with. It's not an absolute because the reality is um, there will be great many martyrs, including those who are being addressed here. But he's saying general demeanor. As you go out, you should pardon. You should be quick to forgive and not hold people's wrongs against them. You know how this works, right? You've been pardoned much by Christ. You can pardon other people of lesser crimes against you. It's a no-brainer. Christians should be the most forgiving people of all because we understand something of the depth of our sin. We understand how great Christ's atonement was. And unfortunately, sometimes we're the people who are worst at it. Here especially, he's talking about going out to unbelievers. Not that it wouldn't apply to believers too, but you're going out to them. Don't hold grudges and their wrongs against you, against them. No doubt Jesus is going to go on to say from the cross, Father, what? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. They don't get it. How about this? Your unbelieving son-in-law, daughter-in-law, mother-in-law, father-in-law, friend-in-law, I don't care who it is, that unbelieving person who offends you and wrongs you, boss, coworker, they don't even know what they're doing. They might know that they're guilty, but they don't even know what they're doing when it comes to the big scheme of things and God and His holy law and God holding them accountable in a true, genuine, deep sense they don't know. They don't know what you know. But you know what you've experienced from Christ. And having been given such great forgiveness, you can forgive too. Preaching that one to myself. And finally, he says in verse 38, give. That's the last command, I think, supporting all of the others. Give. As you go out and you engage unbelievers and, and, and engage them with the gospel, give. Fitting response, generally speaking, and it will be given to you. Good measure. He uses this image probably of grain or corn. What's it going to be? It's not going to be a stingy kind of giving. You give graciously and it's going to be given graciously back to you. Good measure. That means it's a lot. It's pressed down like in a, a jar or a sack. It's, it's going to be filled, pressed down, shaken together so you can even get more inside that bag, running over so it's a liberal kind of giving. And it will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Man, you know, be be giving. You know what it means to receive. You've received so much from God. And so guess what? You should be giving and gracious. And guess what? As a truism, it'll be given back to you. It's okay. It's okay to, to risk giving. Once again, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Everything we have has been given to us. Christians of all people should be generous. He wants them, even in their evangelism, as they're going out, to be generous-minded, not condemning-minded. I love what Paul says about Jesus in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. How about that? You totally get what it means to get. <laughs> I like to say it's the only thing that ever cost God anything. We read from Psalm 33 today, God just spoke the creation into being. Didn't cost him anything. No sweat off his brow. Didn't cost him a dime or a shekel. Didn't cost him anything. 
He loved us while we were still sinners and He gave His only Son. The only thing that ever cost Him anything is the most valuable thing of all. And if you're a Christian, you've received reconciliation through that great gift. Be a giving person. Be a gracious person. Of all people, Christians should be most gracious, not stingy like my grandma Erna used to say. Stingy. Why is it that Christians seem to be stingy? We should be the great givers because we're the great receivers. This is like evangelism training class is what this is. Judge not lest you be judged. You're going to go tell people today, I hope, about the judgment that is to come. You're going to go tell people about the judgment of God brought on by their sin, violation of God's holy standards. But you're going to do so because you have to, if you're going to tell the gospel, you have to do that because otherwise the good news doesn't make any sense. But as you go and talk about judgment, you're not doing so in a judgmental kind of condemnatory way because you too deserve the judgment to come. Changes everything, perspective-wise. Father, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for the struggles that we have living our Christian lives and for the, the confidence that we have knowing that you are causing all of it to work together for our good. Help us at Omaha Bible Church to be quick to speak, not in objecting to your word or the truth, but to be quick to speak your word, to echo what you've said and to, to boast in Christ. But as we boast in Christ, help us to remember who we are apart from Christ and who we were apart from Christ. Help us to have speech that is seasoned, seasoned with grace. Thank you now that we have an opportunity to uh, obey the Lord Jesus. And we have an opportunity to obey the Lord Jesus by eating bread and drinking wine in remembrance of what he's done. Even use this time specifically to help us in applying this passage. Remind us as we eat the bread that Jesus' body was broken that he gave himself up for us because we were sinful and that he shed his blood to atone for our rebellion, for our sin. And please have that stick and have that be a, a, a fragrant aroma even, uh, even in our own minds, to our own souls as we go and we, we want to speak to others about Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.